1: Welcome to Tales.
2: Of some important business to attend to this evening. Scott Silk has joined our team as our submissions editor. By the time this airs, I expect that our webmaster, Josh, will have received and posted the bio and picture for Scott, so you can take a gander. Welcome, Scott. If you've presumed we've opened up our submissions again, slow down. Not so fast. As I've mentioned a dozen or two episodes ago, a listener had wrote in saying that they felt the quality of the stories that we air had declined since we lost our founding host. I suppose I can't comment on that too much since that's quite a subjective sort of thing. However, I did mention to that listener and all of you, we haven't run out of stories submitted to and approved by Larry yet. We have an enormous backlog of stories that Philip Oldham and I have agreed should get trimmed back quite a bit before we accept new submissions. We are of the understanding that most submitting authors know that it'll be a few months before a story airs, but we've got a couple that are more than a year old. I say that so that all authors aspiring to have their written word translated to spoken word knows that they'll have to wait just a little bit longer. Our summer road trip to the South takes us on a stop in Bladenboro, North Carolina. In the show notes, I've linked to a post on a forum on Ancestry.com that recounts this story, and I'd encourage you to give it a look over. The details of this story is that in January of 1932, here in Bladenboro, Mrs. C.W. Williamson, During the course of her day, her cotton dress burst into flames. Her family tore the dress away from her body. If a flaming dress isn't strange enough, no source of ignition could be found or understood, and despite the near-total destruction of the garment, Mrs. Williamson was completely unsinged. Later, on the same day, a pair of Mr. Williamson's pants, not currently being worn, ignited as well, burning to ash. The following day, in view of witnesses, a bed in the home caught fire, then curtains. For the following three days, the fires mysteriously started, burned up whatever they started on, and did not spread any further. The family then left the home briefly, but upon returning home, the fires stopped and did not return. The flames were described as bluish, burnt quickly, gave no observable smoke, and very little smell the williamsons seemed to live out the rest of their days unsure of why the fire started why they stopped or who or what had ignited them let's get on to our stories tonight we have two rather short short stories and one a bit longer the short ones will be up front first up will be a story from joshua rex Joshua Rex is a horror writer, painter, and musician who works as a luthier of stringed instruments in Boston, Massachusetts, where he also lives with his girlfriend, the poet Mary Robles, and three fat and generally bored cats. He is currently revising his first novel, In a a supernatural story about a virtuoso and his haunted viola, as well as a collection of 11 horror short stories titled New Monsters. He'll be looking to publish both very soon. He also had a story called The Unfinished Room, aired by our friends over at Pseudopod at the beginning of last year. You can find him at joshuarex.com, if that's too tricky to remember, as always. Link will be in the show notes. And now we will hear Joshua Rex's The Black Skeleton.
3: The three boys crouched at the kitchen windowsill peering beyond the backyard into the wall of black trees behind the railroad tracks. It was almost 3.13 a.m. Willie, the youngest, yawned a cavernous yawn and rubbed his eyes. "'Hey, turd breath, don't fall asleep now,' said his brother Bobby. "'How are you supposed to see them at night if they're all black?' said their cousin Les. "'They're different than the dark. They're real slick-looking, like oil,' said Bobby." Glancing back at the grease covered clock above the kitchen stove as the big hand crept past the two. So, are they ghosts or what? said Les. They're like dead things, possessed by ghosts. When the train caught fire, their souls got fixed to their bones, said Bobby. Wicked, said Les. Can you see them every night? Once a month, at full moon, said Bobby. Why three thirteen? "'said Willie, weakly from between them. "'Cause that's when the accident happened, "'shit for brains,' said Bobby. "'Willie looked into his brother's mean blue eyes, "'then quickly down at the floor "'and stuck his thumb in his mouth. "'He really didn't want to see the skeletons, "'and he really had to pee. "'But Bobby and Les had invited him along, "'something they had done only once before, "'on the occasion of lighting a firecracker "'under Melanie Wiggins' dress last year "'on the Fourth of July, "'and then only so they could blame it on him.' All summer long, they had gone off into the woods without him. Once, when Willie asked why he couldn't come, Billy had told him he'd get ticks on his dick. Then he smacked him in the head and pushed him into their mother's tomato plants before hurrying off with Les. Willie spent the rest of the afternoon swinging a stick against a rusty clothesline pole, pretending it was his brother's head. Under a minute, said Bobby. He grabbed Willie and Les by their pajama sleeves and pulled them close. Now, this is really important, so listen up. You listening, Chitrag? said Bobby, smacking Willie on the forehead. Willie cried out and tried to wriggle out of his brother's grasp, but Bobby's grip was like talons on prey. Whatever you do, don't look them in the eyes. They search for fresh ones to steal, and if they see yours, they'll hunt you until they get them. Might be tomorrow, might be next month, but they will. Why? said Willie trying to mask the fear in his voice, but failing to. Because they don't got none, said Bobby. Then he rolled his eyes up in his head, so that only the whites showed and grinned like a jester. Ten seconds, says Les. Quick, everybody get down, said Bobby. The boys ducked down like soldiers in a trench, their eyes just above the window ledge, their audible breaths fogging the glass panes. The backyard was part lawn, part parking lot. To the right, their mother's garden ran vertically along a high concrete wall, and to the left, their father's race car was parked on a patch of oil-stained gravel. A hundred paces past the car rose a dark knoll, atop which the railroad tracks were stitched. Beyond the hill was the wall of trees, their black bows hanging like scarecrow arms in the humid summer air. Suddenly they appeared. Scores of them black shapes emerging from the black background of trees, their heads swiveling from side to side on charred spinal columns, their bones like oiled ebony in the moonlight. They mounted the knoll, first at a viscous pace, then gained speed until they were sprinting full on down the hill and toward the house. Willie took one look and dove to the floor, whimpering as he felt a warm sensation in his pants, followed by Bobby jabbing a finger into his back. Get up, limp dick. You missed it. That was the coolest thing I've ever... You pissed yourself again? What the hell is wrong with you? Piss goes in the toilet, not in your pants. And then Bobby was hitting him, close-fisted and hard, and Willie started screaming. The kitchen light flipped on. The boys looked up and saw their father standing in the doorway with his belt in his hand. Willie watched with satisfaction as Bobby got whipped. During the beating, he glanced at Les. Les wasn't watching. His eyes were frozen on the backyard, his fingers still gripping the window ledge. Les's funeral was held the following week. Their aunt Ruth had found him in bed with his face gouged out. It was a closed casket. Bobby spoke little after Les's death and he stopped going into the woods. He didn't stop beating on Willie, though. In fact, Bobby became more violent than ever, getting in a hint whenever he could, leaving grape-colored bruises on Willie's limbs and even bloodying his nose a few times. One day, Bobby went too far and threw Willie into the clothesline pole. It cut a deep gash in the back of his head that required their uninsured parents to call 911. When they got back from the hospital... Bobby got a whipping that left him walking like their gimpy granddad. After the beating, he pulled his pants up, smeared the tears across his cheeks, and went out the back door. Willie watched, smiling, as Bobby limped down the back steps across the yard. He paused halfway up the hill and looked back at the house, his cold blue eyes, liquid with hate, locking on his little brother's. Then he crossed over the tracks and disappeared into the woods. Bobby came back after dusk and gingerly took a seat at the table as her mother was serving dinner. His face was puffy and red from crying and for a minute Willie actually felt sorry for him. He knew how that belt sung when it struck your bare skin but Bobby had deserved it, he reckoned. Bobby was always beating on him. After dinner... While the boys were doing the dishes, Bobby turned to Willie and said, "'I went to the cemetery where those skeletons live. "'I walked in there while they were sitting on their headstones "'and looked right at them, and they didn't do nothing. "'I told them there was this little piss rag that lived here "'and that they could take his eyes any time they wanted. "'Willie dropped the plate he was drying, and it shattered on the floor. "'God damn it!' their father shouted from the living room. Over the growl of monster trucks on the TV, Bobby bent down, picked up one of the shards, and held it under Willie's eye. I'll tell you what, if you ever get me whooped again, you won't need to worry about them skeletons, he said, pressing the point into its socket. I'll cut them out myself. One day during the last week of summer, Willie was swinging his stick at the clothesline pole when a chunk of wood flew off and hit the race car's windshield, spider-webbing it from end to end. Bobby had come out of the woods just in time to see it happen. Now it was Bobby who wore the satisfied grin. He ran down the hill, picked up the piece of stick that had done the damage, and began waving it at Willie, taunting him about the beating he was going to get. At the same moment, their father was going to the fridge for another tall boy when he saw Bobby waving the stick near the cracked windshield. Bobby got whipped so bad, Willie saw blood staining the backside of his jeans afterwards. When it was over, Bobby gave him an insane look, forked his fingers into a V and wriggled them like bug antennae at Willie's eyes while a malevolent grin spread over his gray teeth. Tonight, he hissed. Willie lay in bed with his hand on his privates, his bladder full to bursting. He knew that if he wet the bed again, he would get the same beating Bobby had. Maybe worse. But the fear of running into one of the skeletons kept him there with the blankets pulled over his head until the nauseating pressure got so bad it finally forced him up. Quietly as he could, he unlocked the bedroom door, opened it a crack, and peeked out into the kitchen. Long bands of moonlight glowed on the floor. The clock ticked, but it was in the shadows and he couldn't see the time. Willie listened, hesitated, his hand tucked between his jittery legs, then scurried across the kitchen and into the bathroom, lifting the toilet seat, just in time. He was halfway back to his room when he saw a shadow appear in one of the long rectangles of light, a ribcage and a pair of bony arms. The stitched wound in his head bristled as his hair stood on end. Disoriented with panic, he looked out the window and into the skeleton's eye holes, they were blacker than the rest of it, dense, velvety voids that stirred like a thousand crawling flies. Willie ran to his room, locked the door, and dove under his bed. A moment later, he heard the back door open, then bony toes clacking on the linoleum. It approached his door, sniffed, then started walking down the hall. The door to Bobby's room opened and closed, and then he heard his brother's muffled screams. Willie lay on the wooden floor, staring up in his yellow stained mattress with his hand pressed over his mouth, listening without satisfaction. After Bobby's death, the police began looking for a repeat killer. They asked Willie a lot of questions about Bobby and Les. What did they do when they went into the woods? Did he ever see them talking to any strangers? Had he heard any noises in the house that night? Willie sucked his thumb and shook his head until they stopped asking him things. Willie started school the next month. His teachers and classmates made sad faces at him and never picked on him like they used to. At home, his parents, sunk in their loss, doted on him more than ever, buying him new toys every time they went to the Five and Dime and getting him ice cream whenever he asked for it, though they never ate any. He enjoyed all the attention He didn't miss having a brother, and he certainly didn't miss the bullying. In fact, he really didn't miss Bobby at all. Willie woke on the Saturday after his first week of school to golden light beaming through his bedroom window. He was lying on his side, slowly coming awake, watching dust motes float in the sunlight when he heard a clicking noise, a sound like his mother's Sunday morning dress heels when she walks across the kitchen. It isn't church today, he thought. Willie opened his eyes, turned on his back, and immediately felt a warm wetness spreading in his pants. There was a black skeleton above him, crouched in the corner where the wall met the ceiling. Slowly, it began creeping down the wall like a giant spider, looking at Willie through Bobby's blue bloodshot eyes. Its oily teeth bared in a satisfied grin.
2: That was Joshua Rex's The Black Skeleton, as read by Stephen Thomas Howell. Stephen Thomas Howell is a retired Army officer working towards an MFA in creative writing at the University of Tampa. He writes short stories and is working on his first novel. He lives in Valrico, Florida, with his wife, two sons, and one hyperactive dog. Last I heard from Mr. Howell, he must have been getting quite close to finishing up that MFA. I hope so, and I'm sure envious of that work. Next up will be a story from Benjamin Reverman. Ben Riverman lives in southern Minnesota with his wife and three children. He writes in his spare time and is currently attending school. And now, Benjamin Reverman's interrupted dinner.
4: You mean they had pizza there pre-made and you went with meatloaf? He says to his mother with an air of disbelief. She pulls the already cooked meatloaf out of the paper bag, sets it on the table and replies, "'We just had pizza last week, and I don't want you getting sick of it. "'It's for your own good,' he scoffs. "'I will never get tired of pizza, Mom. "'That's not even possible. "'Besides, last week was like forever ago!' "'His mother, keeping her calm, tells him, "'Go wash your hands and sit at the table. "'Silently, he does as he's told. "'The kitchen has a warm yellow glow from the 40-watt light bulbs. "'The floors are well swept, and the refrigerator is gently humming. "'The mother is lightly singing.' The son, Eleven, is washing his hands in the bathroom, which is not far off from the kitchen. There is a forty-something man sitting at the head of the table reading a newspaper. He is digesting the news and wondering if he should have stepped in when his son was arguing with his mother, but is thinking she handled it pretty well. On the kitchen table there's a purple vase filled with lavender flowers. The scent is just right for this moment in this kitchen, even though it's ten degrees below zero outside. The snow is piling up against the front door. It's a colder-than-average winter for this southern Minnesota household. There are two more residents in the house. The one on the floor is a wiener dog. In exactly six minutes and thirty-two seconds, she will be the last of all five of them still alive. When she escapes, she'll live just long enough to freeze to death outside. During her autopsy, they'll find meatloaf in her stomach, concluding that she was, in fact, the dog who belonged to this family. The last person is the family's sixteen-year-old daughter. She was watching TV and has been called to dinner but can't help finishing this last text message, then another, then another. Her phone will be used as evidence. She stands up from the couch and walks to the kitchen, never taking her eyes off the phone and never coming close to running into anything. Her mother says, Put the phone down, honey. Let's try to eat like a family. Her next text is to her friend who lives in town. It reads, Sorry, gotta eat, meatloaf, Uh. This is her second-to-last text. In five minutes and four seconds, she will make one last panicked attempt to call for help from her bedroom closet upstairs. With no reception, she texts her friend, "'Call the cops! I'm not kidding! My dad's dead!' The police will believe she didn't have time to finish the message. They'll be angry she didn't get the chance. The son, back from his hand-washing adventure, sits down with a sigh and holds his plate up. Meatloaf and mashed potatoes are scooped onto his plate, along with a little gravy." Despite his preference for pizza, mentally he does admit it smells pretty good. Just in case, he cuts a large square off his slice and hands it to the dog, who sits eagerly at his feet because she knows who loves her most. The father puts the newspaper down and hands his plate to his wife. He hasn't spoken very much tonight because he found out earlier today he'd been fired. There was a safety check he didn't remember doing at the plant, which was done incorrectly, costing someone a lot of money. The blame had to land somewhere. He was it. "'He didn't know how to tell his wife. "'The cops who hadn't been to the crime scene "'would automatically blame him because of his situation. "'He would have been under a lot of stress that night,' "'they would later say. "'Those police officers who will have been to the crime scene "'and will have seen what had been done to the father "'didn't doubt his innocence, not in the least. "'Once the family has everything dished up "'and is on the way towards dessert, "'the father thinks he should tell the whole family about his job "'when the dog whines. "'The father tells his son, don't feed the dog table scraps, but he knows his son will anyway. The son bends down to look at the dog and asks, What's the matter, girl? He understands her language, and according to him, that wasn't her I-want-food Wine. it was closer to her there's-a-visitor Wine. The son turns around to look out of the kitchen and through the living room to the big bay window that's facing the long driveway leading to the highway. With the snow, the driveway would be almost undrivable right now, but there are no cars coming up the drive. It being close to full dark, there weren't any headlights anyway. In the following weeks, detectives would learn that the dog and the son were inseparable. When the son would have friends over and they would play wrestle, the dog would go crazy and protective when she thought he was being hurt. More than one of his friends went home with a bite mark or two. Said detectives would learn this, and it had explained the dead dog's mouth full of broken teeth, but it wouldn't explain her missing tail or the shades of white on her fur. They would say... She's only two years old. No way she'd be going gray already. Witnesses will tell them she was all solid brown the day before. As the family continues to eat, the father asks his daughter, How was school today? They have less than three minutes to live. The daughter replies, fine. The father leaves it at that. Finally, the mother asks the father, did something happen at work today? You seem distracted. The father replies, yeah, I need to talk to you guys about something. There is a long pause as the father gets the nerve to say what's on his mind. With the long silence, the family now has less than two minutes to live. The father, not eager to start, and looking for something to get the spotlight off of him, hears the dog bark. He looks at his son, who tells him, Dad, she jumped up on my lap. What's the matter, girl? The dad stands up, pushing his chair backwards with his legs, glad he's got something to save him from this moment. Walking around the table, he goes to the son, who also backs his chair out from the table. The dog is trying to crawl under the boy's shirt, trying to hide. The dad looks at this unexpected behavior and asks, What's got into her? That's when there's a knock at the door.
2: That was Benjamin Riverman's... Interrupted Dinner, as read by Wilson Fowley. Wilson Fowley lives in Vancouver, Canada, with his wife and two children. By day, he programs computers for a living. By night, well, some evenings, he's the director of a community show chorus. In the spare time he has left, he narrates stories for various podcasts. He intends to record a voiceover demo any day now. Really. Thank you, Wilson. Next up will be a story from D.P. Watt. D.P. has been writing weird, fiction, and supernatural tales for over a decade. He is based in the U.K. This story comes from his 2010 collection, An Emporium of Automata, which has been reprinted by Ebenvale Press in early 2013. In the show notes will be a link to D.P. Watt's website, in which he includes other pieces that have been published in Ex Occidente Press, Megazathus Press, Hieroglyphic Press, etc., And now, D.P. Watts, the comrade.
1: I have no aversion to hospitals. They have become places to which I have grown accustomed, having been present at the deaths of all of the members of a large and insular family, of which I am now the only remaining one. The sweet bleach that washes the floors carries with it the delicate scent of final moments— and the air is filled with whispered words of forgiveness and embittered memories. I have even absorbed the sounds of a busy ward into my night consciousness, so much so that I find it difficult to sleep at home. It lacks the gentle pacing of nurses outside a sick-room, and the metrical chiming of ventilation units, heart monitors, and other clinical paraphernalia, which have become a dark symphony that beckons me to sleep. This may explain why I was sleeping whilst my father died. Well, that is not strictly true... I had not woken until the very end, despite almost two weeks of vigil by his bedside. I had not been awake during his confessional, and there was much to confess. Nor, apparently, was I able to be woken when he became delirious and hallucinatory. The doctor assured me that this was quite usual in cases of the disease that my father had. Diseases that forced the one to linger as every credible faculty of reason and perception is gradually eroded and the mind slides into some memory of pre-rational fear and isolation where every movement, every flicker of light, every distant sound threatens and excites with equal measure. So without waking me, the assembled nurses and doctor had left, no doubt to acquire sedatives, clean the bedpans, or attend to other patients at the threshold. So I was alone with father, as he too clawed his way from this world. It was not his yelling that awoke me, I had become quite used to that. I recall awaking with a sense of excitement, of expectation and wonder. Of what this urgent awe concerned I had no idea. My father was sat upright in bed, a pose he had been unable to sustain unaided for a number of weeks, and with a fevered agitation was tearing at his left forearm, scratching and gouging with such ferocity that the sheets were already soaked with blood. As I rose to restrain him, he began beating himself all over, screaming, "'Keep him under! Keep him under!' I noticed that there seemed to be ripples of strange movement across his skin, like a lake where fish rise to its surface. Within these ripples something erupted, a little like a boil, I would say, rapidly and in many places at once, but as each of the pustules arose it blackened and became an oily swelling which he struck with his fist.' I was quite frozen, unable to move at all, watching my father's body become a corpulent mass of bubbling black boils which rose and receded with each of his frenzied strikes. I watched my father beat himself to death, and a saner man, one who has not been introduced to the mystery of which I shall tell you all too soon, would have concluded that these dark tumours were actually bruises from his own hands. But I saw those things which writhed beneath his skin, and heard his final words, which were addressed to me with wild, imploring eyes. "'Keep em under!' he pleaded, and then died. There was some confusion, as one might expect, when the staff found my father's battered and broken corpse, which they had left only minutes before without any such scarring, and me standing beside it with an expression that must have revealed both shock and fascination. However, the doctor assured me he had seen a similar event before, and whilst the medical incidence of it was rare, and as yet unexplained, he had coined a term to describe it, and was confident that research on its occurrence would soon take place. He called it, with some hesitancy, even embarrassment, immediate metastatic outbreak. I had no interest in his medical distinctions, that crazed obsession with the nomenclature of death. I had observed my father pass away in the most gruesome and bizarre agony, and every part of my body seemed taut with anger and frustration at the pathetic half-measures of this feeble society. It seemed to me then that for all of our media world of high technology and fast this and that, we had not advanced one step in our ability to deal with the dead. In fact, despite of all our wretched taxonomy of illness, we had retreated from the real issues. The ritual, the significance of a human death. No doubt my mind was as volatile as my body was exhausted, and these two conflicting urges had made me unusually aggressive. It was then he told me of my father calling my name, and my mother's, and of the two gentlemen he claimed were standing by the door. I must have become annoyed at this devious consolation, at his underhand attempt to soothe a pain that cannot be assuaged. I heard his voice drifting into the distance, and I nodded some kind of response here and there as he may have explained his theories on immediate metastatic outbreak, "'or perhaps he was discussing the passing of his own father, mother, brother or sister. "'I do not know. "'His voice had become a whirring background to my thoughts "'which tumbled in violent contemplation of destroying the entire structure of the hospital. "'It seemed to me that it would be as simple as tearing up a postcard, "'as though with one gigantic hand I might rip the building from the ground "'and crumple it into old waste paper. "'I came to my senses then.' "'catching the last words of the doctor as he led me to the door. "'And it is imperative that you get some rest. "'You'll see things clearer, then. "'You have my sympathies.' "'I turned on him with what must have been a terrible expression, "'given his own terrified face. "'I have no need of your sympathies,' I spat. "'Your little toy hospital is nothing but a charade. "'I should have dragged him to the forest to be devoured by wolves "'rather than probed by your needles and gadgets.' I really wanted to hurt him at that moment. A euphoric wave of antagonism rose in me, and I leaned towards him threateningly. I wanted to smash the fool into his filing cabinet, spill his blood among the papers and the prescriptions. Instead, I settled for kicking over the bin by the door, and a sneer of contempt as I slammed the door. It may not seem much, but my entire life had, up until that point, been a hazy repetition of what had been asked of me, by parents and teachers, bosses and lovers. Everything had passed away in a dull mist of acceptance and drudgery, but now, in that very moment, walking away from the scene of my father's death, I felt an urgent, insistent call to live. But at that time I had no idea at all, not even the vaguest inkling, what living really meant. In the days that followed I continued my routine. I attended work and made the necessary calls that would ensure my father was buried— although I did not go to the funeral. I paid the bill when it arrived, but I was expecting something else. It may have been the knowledge that all those I had known and in my way had loved were gone, and therefore I was next. No, it was not that. I have always had a heightened sense of mortality. That was not what burdened me now. I now know what I was expecting. A call. Indeed, I lingered often by the door or the telephone. I even began to peer from the curtains into the street below, watching the passers-by for any that might be familiar, for any that might be my awaited visitor. But they were all strangers, although there was something familiar in each one that I was unable to identify. Perhaps merely their difference had become apparent. One Sunday morning I seemed to jolt from some kind of reverie, and found myself standing by the front door. I must have been there hours, dressed in my suit and tie. I opened the door then, and was unsurprised, a reaction that surprised me, to see two gentlemen advancing up the path towards my house. One was tall and lean, with a pronounced limp in his right leg. His face seemed stretched tightly across the ridges of his high cheekbones, and his eyes seemed dull and tired. The second was in many ways his opposite being of an almost comically diminutive stature and quite portly. His face was full, and beads of sweat glistened across his balding forehead. His eyes were small and deep, yet they too seemed weary and dead. Something about them gave me the impression they were related. Their mannerisms seemed somehow complementary. They were dressed in suits almost identical to mine, and carried with them wide black suitcases bearing gold initially, which read, respectively, A.F. and Dr. C. I was certainly intrigued as they silently entered the hallway and proceeded through to the lounge, where the taller man took a seat on an uncomfortable stool by the window. The other took his bag and placed it with his own beside the stool, before standing behind him in a pose which gave me the impression that he was some minder or bodyguard for the taller man. I... "'I'm Aloysius Frem, and this is my associate, Dr. Crappett,' the tall man said, unbuttoning his jacket and positioning himself as comfortably as the stool would allow. "'I gather that you have been expecting us.' "'Well, I have been expecting somebody,' I said. "'Not necessarily yourselves.' "'We are here in connection with the incident you were fortunate enough to witness at the hospital,' Frem said. "'Dr. Crappert and I would like to extend to you "'every opportunity that was offered to your debauched father.' "'I had been about to take a seat opposite them, "'in my favourite reading chair, "'but this insult seemed to relight that anger "'that had smouldered since my father's death. "'Who are you people?' "'I started, advancing across the room. "'I half expected Crappert to advance upon me in return, "'but instead he stared blankly at the wall beyond me, "'with an idiotic smirk on his fat face. "'You misunderstand me, doesn't he, Dr. Crappett?' Frem said, turning slightly to his companion, "'who nodded his head in a fashion that reminded me "'of those dogs that sit in the back window of cars. "'I have nothing but respect for your father. "'It was entirely due to his indulgence "'that he was offered the gift you witnessed.' "'Are you saying this is some kind of judgment?' "'I demanded.' some moral code he breached that made him deserve death. "'Oh, no! I hope we haven't given you that impression. "'We wouldn't want to give that impression, would we, Dr. Crappett?' Fren began, looking up again at the curious doctor, whose lips curved into a senseless grin. "'I mean to say that all beings, "'whether at one end of your moral code or the other,' are capable of engaging with our, shall we say, organization. It is a case of extremes, where the most virtuous and the most dissolute are joined in revelation concerning the undercurrent of this space we all inhabit. I mean in no way to suggest that there would be any question of judicial structure, even of a celestial nature. Let us say instead that The more intensely one lives, the more likely one is to experience the truth. I could not help focusing on the peculiar manner in which he pronounced moral code, celestial nature, and the truth. He seemed contemptuous and celebratory, exultant and derisory. The words were layered into meanings that enticed me to demand an explanation. I was made to feel both intrigued and repulsed, a situation that Frem seemed entirely content with, a situation he had no doubt come to expect. "'I'm somewhat lost at the moment,' I confessed. "'Your arrival seems so intrusive, so vulgar and improper, but—' Frem nodded knowingly, and implored me to continue with a wave of his bony hand. "'But I also sense that I have been expecting you,' I said, with satisfied nods from both of my guests. "'And I also sense that you have been waiting for the opportunity to visit.' "'Oh, yes, you understand our position entirely,' Frem said, evidently very satisfied with my response. "'We represent a certain party that would be most pleased to have you as one of its members.' Recalling my earlier frustrations at the hospital and the growing social dissatisfaction that had played on my mind recently, I must have misunderstood him. He seemed to imply some kind of organisation, a political party, some fanatical religious group perhaps. I was in no mood for any surreptitious attempt to enrol me in some crackpot faction of social misfits. "'Look, I may seem a little agitated at the moment,' I said, "'but kicking over a bin at a hospital hardly makes me a revolutionary.' Quite so, quite so. Social revolution is the first mistake. Your revolt is of an entirely different order, Frem said. We are here as representatives of certain academies that specialize in educational projects. We only offer you the time to learn, a window of opportunity, so to speak. And what might this teaching consist of? "'I asked, humouring them a little. "'It would illuminate the elements within you "'that are the broken residues of a being "'that has torn itself asunder "'to relieve the burden of an insane and lonely desperation. "'It has, quite literally, "'divided itself into separate consciousnesses "'for the sake of its own pleasure,' "'Frem said, without the least suggestion of a joke.' "'You are a constituent component of that entity, "'and we offer you the chance to learn those ways "'most suited to its and your continued entertainment.' "'I looked at them both in amazement, "'but I could see from their blank stares "'that these words were meant most seriously. "'You are suggesting that I might be reunited "'with some onanist deity "'that has somehow separated me from it "'merely to enjoy my struggle to return?' I said, confident now that these freaks were recruiting for some outlandish cult. Again you are mistaken, Frem said with his usual patience. But, as I say, we are here to offer you insight, so allow me to oblige. He leaned across to the wall of my sparse lounge and gently peeled away the wallpaper, or at least that's what I thought he was doing. It seemed that he had taken a whole section of the wall away. I could see the plaster and brickwork clinging to the part of the wall, which he now draped over his arm like some piece of cloth. I could see a dark, undulating mass which writhed delicately beyond the area that Frem had peeled away. Dr. Crappert gazed at it longingly, even lovingly, and I will admit that I was immediately captivated by the sense of witnessing a powerful presence to which I was in some way joined. I sensed a familiarity, as though... Greeting a friend one has not seen in years, but there also arose a desire to flee, and leave that repugnant being alone. But there was nowhere to flee to. Frem, had shown me the pulse, the ripples beneath everything, and I understood how much I needed to learn. For if I refused their offer, every moment in this world would be a maddening attempt to conceal or disbelieve the awful reality that softly moves in all things. So with the choice between two parts of lunacy, I accepted the one that might reward me most sensuously, the decadent course complicit in my own destruction. In the weeks they stayed with me, Aloysius Fram and Dr. Crappert showed me things. Rather than keep them under as my father had urged me to, it was revealed how best to let them out. Using the instruments that they brought with them, and from the charts written in extraordinary books, whose pages open inwards in a manner that I only now begin to fathom, these guests unlocked the secret of my bones and skin. They made my body a parchment for the writing of ineffable verses, my blood the ink of idiotic scriptures, and my voice the host of alien choirs, whose exultant wails echoed inside me towards a void I had not dreamed could exist in any being." I was tutored in the cruelest elements of existence. The labyrinthine threads of life were unravelled in me, and I was re so that my maniac limbs might dance to prehistoric melodies. My revolt was indeed of a different order. I know that now, and so much more. I cannot tell you how much more I know, after the visit of my comrades. Aloysius Frem demonstrated how to lack completely and Dr. Crappett made my mind a cage for philosophies and theologies so foreign to the human brain that their thoughts ached and strained inside me with an infernal desire to escape my form. I struggled and groaned, screamed and laughed under the teaching of my associates. They sought to correct my mistakes, and they have done an excellent job. I had assumed that this world is governed by an entity or some such divinity with the knowledge and concern to distinguish between good and evil. It is now clear to me that such a moral quest, our foolish, ethical preoccupation, has been humanity's greatest folly. For the teachings of Aloysius Frem and Dr. Crappert have shown me that the world is so generous, innocent, ignorant, and mad. And we, its lost and lonely toys, must perform those macabre waltzes that so fascinate and divert its shattered, deviant intelligence.
2: That was D.P. Watts' The Comrade, as read by Colin Clues. Colin Clues is a musician and writer living in U.K. He loves music, reading, and movies. Although he's British, he grew up in Africa and still hasn't managed to do anything cooler than that, despite studying philosophy and learning how to play the electric guitar. Thank you, Colin. And that will be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.